Moses, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foe on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The sea, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgment, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shade upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Morning. I know poetry is not everyone's cup of tea. Walking in this morning as you glanced at your bulletin, I wonder how many of you saw that we're looking at another psalm, did a little mental fist pump and said, yes, poetry. It's uh, not my experience as a, I used to teach English in schools and this was the unit other than Shakespeare that you get the most eye rolls from. Because um, it's hard work sometimes looking at poems. Anthologies of poems particularly can be hard to understand because the arrangement of them sometimes seems really random. And I feel like that's kind of what we come to with the Psalms. I've I've, um, been to lectures about this stuff, I've done some reading about it, but I don't know if I've really got my head around how the 150 Psalms we have are organized the way that they are. There's five books, but the order of them seems a little bit, well, it's it's not really like a narrative, it's not like there's a story there. There's no plot line, there are sometimes characters, but mostly it feels like just ideas thrown together, little snapshots of bits and pieces, events and, and feelings, and I guess that's okay because it's poetry and it's allowed to. What tends to alienate a lot of people from poetry is that they just don't get it. They read it and the words wash over them and it's really hard. And I've had that experience plenty of times, not for lack of trying. The last time I tried to give serious poetry a go, uh, I was in an artsy sort of mood. I remember I was uh, in a beautiful holiday house in the Greater Blue Mountains, and I'd uh, forgotten to bring anything to read, so uh, I scrounged around on the shelves, as you do. I found some old board games, I found some thriller novels that look like trash, and I found this anthology of poems from this Australian guy who I'd never heard of. So <laughs> I thought, well, why not? I give this a serious go, and I tried. I really tried, but like after an hour of giving this guy the benefit of the doubt, I still had no idea what was going on. 
I, I just couldn't connect with what I was reading. And so it's with some fear, I suppose, that I come and ask you to turn to Psalm 97 with me. Knowing full well that poetry is not easy for us, and in fact, uh, why don't we ask God to give us some help to understand this word he's given us this morning. Come pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that's what we should say, uh, and it is a rich treasure, and yet some parts of it are hard for us to understand. We pray that uh, you would help us to have your thoughts in our mind this morning. Help us to have that so clearly in our minds that we leave this place encouraged, that we leave this place praising you for the things we've learned about who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. See, what excites me about the Bible's poetry is not the clever rhymes and the tricks that you might be looking for as you read other poems. It's not entertainment, it's not wordplay, because all that sort of stuff pretty much disappears when you try to translate something from Hebrew that it was written in into, into English. The puns don't work, nothing rhymes. And besides, what Hebrew poets tend to rhyme how they write is that they don't just rhyme syllables, they, they rhyme ideas. You might have heard me say that before, because I always say that when I come across a psalm. What you're looking for isn't words that rhyme, what you're looking for is ideas that rhyme, metaphorically. You're not looking for sounds that are closely linked, you're looking for uh, ideas and concepts that are closely linked, usually put right next to each other in the same, in the same verse. Two or three of them, either contrasting or reinforcing the same point. That's sort of what you're looking for as you read Hebrew poetry. And you might notice that from now on as we make our way through this psalm this morning. But even that is not the thing to focus on. See, appreciating a poet's technique is one thing, but poetry is more than just showing off. You're also trying to communicate something. I don't know if you've ever tried to write poetry in your, your artsy moments, but you usually have something to say. What a poet is usually trying to do is to relay an experience or an emotion or an idea. They're trying to capture something in, in brief words of an experience that they've had, passing that on to whoever's reading it. So it doesn't need the structure and tight logic that you know, a narrative or a story might need. Poems can just be sound bites, impressions, bits and pieces of words that communicate an idea, get a particular point across. And reading that sort of poetry often feels a bit like you're doing a puzzle, where someone's gone and left you all these clues so you can try to appreciate and figure out what the writer's given you so you can share in that experience. The exciting thing with Scripture is that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, which means that there is God here doing some self-disclosure. It's God being the author. It's God giving you the sound bites and the emotions and the feelings and the images as he shares something of himself in the form of a poem, which I think makes it worth working at. And with the Psalms, you know that they were often also used as readings uh, in temple worship, sung as songs for public and private praise. You'd sing some of these at temple. You'd use this for your personal devotions if you're in ancient Hebrew. So here are words this morning that we're looking at, words that God's given to his people to show them something of himself and words that he's given them to express their praise. He's helping them think certain thoughts, a certain pattern of 
seeing him, understanding him, that's meant to result in praise. And what I think Psalm 97 is about, which has been uh, nicely picked up by our musos in, 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 in the words of the songs we've sung, what Psalm 97 is about is about the coming reign of God. This is like a promise. God is disclosing that, yes, I am coming in all my glory. And this is also a song of hope given to suffering Israel. Yes, our God is coming in all his glory. I wonder whether on this side of Jesus we could say Psalm 97 is our psalm too. Whether we could empathize, we could maybe own this language. Now, I don't know whether this section of the Psalms is exactly chronological, but Psalm 97 seems to fit rather well with where we left off last week, Psalm 96. Psalm 96 was all about the absolute power that God has over his world, the praise that is owed him because he's the creator. And you see the first line we start from is, in Psalm 97 is, the Lord reigns. Sort of picking up that same thread. This is the same thread that, I guess, when John picked this series out, we're looking at all these enthronement psalms. Psalm 93, Psalm 97, Psalm 96. All these have a theme where God is king. But this psalm reads a little different to Psalm 96 just before it. If you have a look, there are similarities. I mean, God is described in all his glory, but it's not a static description of someone... If I'm describing to you uh, my, my parents and my brother or my wife, I'll tell you about what they're like, but in Psalm 97, God's on the move. God's doing things. Look at verses 1 to 5. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. So the picture is of God reigning on high, sitting on the heaven. It's not, it's not a picture of God reigning on high, sitting in the heavenlies, far and remote and, and above everything. No, this is the picture of God who was on his throne, but he's coming down to earth. The first line tells you how you're supposed to respond to the God who's coming, the reign of God that's coming. The same thoughts expressed twice. The Lord reigns, and so let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. The earth, all the way to the coastlands, to the furthest reaches of the world, are rejoicing because the best thing that could possibly happen is happening. When God's reign, which, which is absolute all the time, but what the psalm seems to be describing is a time when God's reign is unchallenged, unhindered, uncovered for everyone to see and for no one to doubt. Look at verse 6. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the people see his glory. This is a time when you can't not see the glory of God, because it's so in your face. It's written in the sky, and there's no avoiding it anymore. What happens on that day? Uh, track back through the five verses we've just read. Yes, there's rejoicing, but there's also darkness and burning. In verse 2. 
clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, consuming foes on every side. This is consistent with what Israel knows of God in their experience of God so far. Remember in the desert with Moses. So after he's done the 10 amazing, amazing acts to take them out of Egypt, after they've crossed the Red Sea, after they're in the desert and they're brought to Mount Sinai, Moses leads the people there. He's about to uh, go up to the mountain to give them the Ten Commandments and the law, and God comes down onto the mountain to meet with Moses. But if you remember, there's all these cordoned-off areas around the base of the mountain because you can't touch that mountain, Israel. You can't even step on it. Not that they wanted to go onto the mountain because God had descended on the mountaintop. What they saw was cloud and fire and darkness. Hear how the writer of the Hebrews recalls that event, which uh, was when Israel met the Lord in Sinai. This is Hebrews 12, verse 18. He reminds them that Israel came to a mountain that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, and to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Uh, That's Moses whose job it was to go up that mountain to meet with God. And he's terrified. Because there's God coming down to his people and he is in darkness and smoke and fire. That's the image that Psalm 97 picks up. God coming to earth. Cloud and darkness hide him. Because he is other. He is holy. And we are anything but. God's holiness is the thing that's really on show. Notice, it's not his power. It's not his might. It's not his strength. His power isn't the focus. It's his righteousness and justice and holiness that's emphasized again and again in this psalm. Verses 2 to 6. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, consuming his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the people see his glory. So his righteousness, that is his glory. Power is not the foundation of his throne. He's not some tyrant. He's not some bully that gets his way because he's bigger than everyone else. What, what, what makes God glorious, what makes him, what makes the world rejoice when he comes is that his righteousness and justice is shining through. At the heart of the universe is not power, The heart of the universe is righteousness and justice. So this isn't an anything goes sort of world like you might be tempted to believe when you see people getting away with all sorts of things. It's not a world put together by random coincidences where right and wrong don't matter because in the end you and I don't really matter because there is no meaning. No, there is a throne and a king on the throne 
to whom stuff matters. It's no big surprise that when, when God descended on Mount Sinai way back then, back in the cloud in Exodus, no surprise that what he gave to the people was law, requirements of righteousness and justice for the people who belong to him. Because it matters. It matters to him. Next in the psalm, we see opposition. And the opposition lasts for about half a verse. Verse 3. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. Opposition doesn't stand a chance. There is a throne of power founded on righteousness and justice and those opposed to God will meet him on that basis faced with his just righteous anger. And they stand no chance. Even the mountains melt like candle wax. He makes the whole world tremble. How do you pick a fight against God? He's the one who makes the mountains melt like wax. There is no chance of survival for the fool who says there is no God. In fact, those who didn't follow God will be ashamed on that day. Look at verses 6 and 7. The heavens proclaim His glory. All peoples will see His righteousness. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship Him or you gods. You know, at a football game, before the game starts, you've got two rival fans sitting on different stands, each in their tribes, cheering and yelling, cheering on their team, yelling abuse at the others. What happens when you've got eight minutes left and one team is winning 40 to nil? Shame is what happens, isn't it? They're not cheering anymore. They're shuffling into the aisles. They're trying to get into the car park before the final whistle goes because they know it's over. There's no coming back if you've been cheering for the wrong team all along. You just keep on walking. You find the nearest exit and you try to get out of there. It's sad, but I think there's going to be a lot of very surprised and very disappointed people on the day when God appears in glory. And people see their idols for what they are. Empty. Because idols are nothing. They're made. There's no power in them. There's no righteousness or justice to be found in them. If you look at verse 7, there's even this call on the spiritual powers that might be behind some of these idols. They get falsely worshipped. Even these spiritual powers will see that they really ought to have been worshipping God when He appears in glory. So there's shame for one bunch. But for the fans on the winning side, for the home team, they're cheering. Look at verses 8 and 9. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So what are they so happy about? Does it sound a bit funny to you? They're happy about judgment. Sounds a little bit sick, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit odd. 
They're happy because God is judging the world. Look at verse 8. Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Courtrooms are not usually happy places. The only happy people at a sentencing are the victims of the crime when they see that someone guilty gets called to account. And you've seen those interviews, the post-courtroom interviews. The sentence is never heavy enough to satisfy them, is it? But you know, our court systems, as good as we try to make them, they're never going to be perfect. We try. We have to try. But it always makes us uneasy when you hear about death sentences being handed out. And so it should. Because at the end of the day, when you've got one flawed human being judging another flawed human being, who knows if we've got it, if we've got it right? Who really knows the fitting penalty for a crime, like drug smuggling or, or any other crime for that matter? Actually, God does. And it's a strange sort of joy. But you know that feeling of satisfaction that a classroom feels when the teacher finally busts the kid who's been disrupting everyone? Or the relief that the nation felt when someone like Ivan Milat got brought to justice. We got him. You know, when that, when that Sydney Siege guy finally, when that ended, there's a, there's a relief that sort of happens to the nation, doesn't it? It's always sad and tragic when you have to deal with a mess of sin. That's not a question. But, but it is a relief when the people causing suffering are brought to some sort of justice are called to account for the suffering they've caused. And when God comes to judge, because he's sovereign, because he's all-wise, because he's above every other being and power, he's not going to be bribable, he's not going to be corruptible, no one's going to get away with it. And he's not going to be too heavy-handed or to go too easy like we sometimes worry. His sort of judging vindicates and sets right the universe for rejoicing. Maybe it's, it is the victims, only the victims who understand how good it is when justice actually happens. And so the psalm finishes, verses 10 to 12, with two commands and an assurance. Preachers dream, really, when, when the passage itself gives you the application. But this is what the psalms sort of do. They tell you, this is temple worship, they tell you about God and they tell you how you ought to respond. First command is very direct. You see that in verse 10. Hate evil. Hate evil. Which is hard to do in our culture because we're tempted to be fascinated by evil, to toy with evil. All our entertainment industry is about an interest in the evil things that go on in our world. Whether it's Fifty Shades or something less obvious. But we're not supposed to play with evil. We're supposed to hate it. Don't let yourself get desensitized to this thing that's all around us. No, just sit on your hands and put up with it. I hate evil. That's a very active thing. What might we do to put an end to evil as we have ability and power.
Second command is to rejoice. Verse 12. Rejoice. That's to be the nature of life for God's people. Even while they live amongst the mess, here and now, God's people are told to rejoice. Maybe that's because they know God's going to come and judge. Maybe that's because of this assurance that's sandwiched between these two commands. If you look at the second half of verse 10, there's a promise there, there's an assurance there, something for us to know. The assurance we find is that God is a saving God. He's a God that isn't just going to deliver on the end, at the last day, but here's a God who, in verse 10, guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice. Which brings us to the close of what the poet's written for us in this psalm. As I think about what's been written for us, my problem, and I wonder whether any of the Israelites who read this psalm centuries before me had the same problem, my problem is not with the God of this psalm. He seems great. My problem, as I read this psalm, is with me. Because when I read that God's going to judge, that idols are nothing, that he delivers the upright in heart, I know full well that (laughs) I'm not upright in heart. I get distracted by idols all the time. And if God's going to be thorough in his judging, if this is the mountain-melting God who's going to burn everyone, what chance have I got? I want him to come to bring justice, because that's beautiful and that's right. But I know that if he gave me what I deserve, I'm gone. We saw him before, holy, holy, holy. And he is. But I also know that woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips, unclean eyes, unclean heart, everything. And I live amongst people of unclean everything. How can anyone stand before this God when he comes? Who's got the right? None of us do. Except, let me continue that reading that I started from Hebrews chapter 12 when I was talking about that image that the psalmist picks up. Way back at the start of my talk. Hebrews 12, 18. And I'll I'll read through the whole section. The writer of the Hebrews says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm. You haven't come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you've come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Did you get the key bit there? We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new agreement to his blood that makes us clean. In Jesus, we get to be counted with the righteous. And so suddenly, Psalm 97, Psalm 97 is awesome for me. We might well read Psalm 97. The Lord Jesus reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Literally, joy to the world, for the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. May all people see his glory before that great and terrible day when he comes to judge. Rejoice, you who've been made righteous. Praise his holy name. Amen.